Um, so this, the important thing though, is that this is Kino Kingdom 40. 40 episodes of talking about films on industrial estates and disappointing thrillers. Yeah, here we are. Um, And films that have the same title as that other film, but aren't that (laughs) the film. Which has happened in this episode again. Um, I I am in the middle of watching two films. One's called Rust Creek. And I, to be honest, I feel, I feel like I, uh, I've seen enough of it to comment on it already, but (laughs) I'll, I'll, I'll sit, I'll watch the rest. And, um, and the other one is a film with Carl Urban in whom we fancy called, well, it's called Beyond Suspicion, but it was originally, well, in everywhere, I think, apart from the UK, it's called Bent. And ah, I can I see, see why. I can see, yeah, the <laughs> with a rise in the marketing. <laughs> yeah, that's quite a different meaning. Um, so, yeah, Carl Urban is Bent. Uh, I, I found I, out recently the the c word which is probably too strong for this podcast yeah um in america is specifically um a derogatory term aimed at women uh it's not aimed at men which is strange really? but yeah but then in the uk yeah because i heard an american linguist talking about it on a podcast obviously <laughs> and um and he was talking about it like oh you know it's a slur against women and i was thinking is it though because you know, I'm pretty I'm pretty liberal with my use of that word, and it's it's yeah. it doesn't have a gender preference. I've got to say, and um, but well, no, yeah, in, and he did the... he did actually mention to be fair, but in Britain it's very different, and it's it's you know it's a catch-all term. <laughs> yeah, honestly, you call your fruit knit anything, your your kids, <laughs> your khakis. Um, although saying that though, it is used against from from mano or mano in The Departed, isn't it? Yeah, maybe that's the Irish thing. I don't know. Yeah, maybe maybe that's like Mark Wahlberg says. Oh, by the way, I've just come back from a weekend in Aberkenvig, where there's a really <laughs> lovely Chinese. So I'm still, I've still got the accent. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I've, like you, you've just talked in a Boston accent, Mark. You haven't, you haven't picked up Welsh accent. Weekend in Aberkenvig, where there's a lovely Chinese takeaway that Brit has never been to. But ever. have you been there? You probably have. Well, but to Aberkenvig. Or to that yeah. specific Chinese in Abergavenny. Yeah, apparently there's like a little like river with a little bridge over it and stuff. Yeah. In 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 uh, the place. Really? Yeah, what in awesome. the Chinese? See, you want to go there now as well, don't you? Yes. Oh, we'll have to. I'll try and get in contact with Mark Wahlberg. See what it's like. <laughs> Mark, there's someone on the phone for you. Um, they want to know what the Chinese is like in Abakenvig. <laughs> he would just say, just put the phone down. I don't know what any of those words mean in that order. Um, <laughs> I it, yeah, and I, I literally live in Wales, and yet I'll be trying to contact Mark Wahlberg in LA to get his get the lowdown. Yeah, and then you'll say, but and then you'll say, like, hello, is this? You'll say, it's, it's Rupert Harvey. I'm I'm from the Kino Kingdom podcast. We uh, built up a fictional scenario where you spent a weekend in Wales, and I just wondered if any of that bled through to reality. And is it no, no? Ignore no, the didn't. fact, Mark, that we've been criticizing your acting talent outside of comedy roles for many months or years now. <laughs> what was it like in The Departed? He was actually what. Well, He's kind of a funny role in that, to be fair. So he's pretty good because he's just really overly aggressive all the time. And that's so that's kind of funny. It's yeah. it's almost like a comedic role in itself. 
So uh, even then, even then, yeah, that's true. Actually, I'd have to have a look at his filmography. But yeah, everything I remember, well, it was basically the the other guys, wasn't it? Is the the big the big funny one, and and the first yes. Ted has some serious laughs yes. in it. But, um, it's but, because uh, it's because he takes everything dead seriously, and so that's funny when he's in a comedy, because it's quite deadpan. But then when you see him in like Boogie Nights or oh, Happening or something like that then and he's he's trying to be sincere it's just it it comes across as um a bit strange shall we say um you can see him acting (laughs) you could see the cogs turning um you could see him turning around mouthing words and miming writing a check my favorite um before we go on to the arkansas which have you done by the way i have it was Nice. Very easy this month, I think. Oh, really? Well, you did three. It was a three step. I'm keeping track, by the way, of like the audience against you. So at the moment, at the moment, it's one nil to you. Um, Yeah, I I forgot. I don't know if you remember a few episodes ago, uh, my random tagline generator popped out half man, half machine, half finished, half cut. And we (laughs) mused upon it being like a, a Robocop. So like a, a robot built for the police, but just like just blinded by alcoholism. Uh, so it never <laughs> actually gets anything done. And uh, a someone who wishes to remain anonymous, well, two people who wish to remain anonymous, will call them uh, Jeffrey Dahmer and yeah, and toy box difficult. <laughs> <laughs> Toy box difficult. I went to school with him. Um, he, they have sent through possible suggestions of titles for that film, in which there will be a sort of a drunken Robocop trying to just solve basic crimes, but just fighting alcoholism. And the three that I've got are Robocopperberg, <laughs> Teetotal Recall, <laughs> and Ciderborg. I like Ciderborg. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's nice. Yeah, very good. So uh, obviously I've got um I've printed off my dot matrix printer uh, my random tagline generator has spat out something else for us to talk about but mm. first of all the Arkansas so you ha- you had I've got a response um from someone who again wishes to remain in a veil of secrecy and has given me the pseudonym of Teapot Fire Brigade but uh, this is so. We had to get from Courtney Cox to Bruce Dern. Right. And we had Courtney Cox was in Ace Ventura with Jim Carrey. Jim was in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind with Mark Ruffalo. Mark Ruffalo was in Avengers with Samuel L. Jackson, who was in The Hateful Eight with Bruce Dern. And that's four steps. Okay. So what have you got? You versus the audience. Bruce Dern was in The Hateful Eight. With Kurt Russell, who's in Three Thousand Miles to Graceland, with Courtney Cox. Bloody is that hell. right? Because I didn't, I didn't check online, what if, but it's but because I, I recently saw Three Thousand Miles to Graceland. Did I? No, <laughs> I saw it. Hang on, I watched <laughs> it. Suddenly, suddenly watch? doubting myself. <laughs> did yeah. Have you seen it then? Yes, I have seen it. But did did you have anything you wanted to add to my? No, really. It's. <laughs> It's one of did those you, movies. It's, it's watchable. Did you, but... did you wish it was better? It felt like it was. It needed to be better. Yeah, mostly because of the cast. But like you say, like most, the cast that's presented to you is not the cast that <laughs> remains in the film. Um, so yeah, but it's you know I can always watch Kurt 
um, you know, I can always watch Kevin, so that's fine. So yeah, two, it was a two-stepper from you then. Um, yeah. So yeah, before we launch into the things, the um, the tagline that was that was pumped out to me is "In space, no one can hear you dream." Oh, mm. that's actually quite good. That's actually quite weirdly poetic. But again, I mean, it's it, to me, it sounds like one of those things that um, I don't know. I can imagine the start of the film before it inevitably sort of goes into space. It would be a like a I know like a girl sitting on a near a lake looking up at the moon and the stars and she'd be with a guy and she'd say, you know, in space no one can hear your dream and then he'd sort of frown slightly and say, I think that applies to other places as well. You don't <laughs> have to go into space for someone to like not hear your dream. Yeah, that's true. That is true. It's uh, I mean obviously. It, it's a kind of play on words from the original alien tagline. So, and yet the presence of the dream factor brings in a bit of well, Freddy the Krueger. The presence of the dream factor. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got a bit of Freddy Krueger, so it can almost be Freddy in space, which I'm not sure they, have they done that yet? I don't know. I mean, it's it would be the fourth film, wouldn't it? Leprechaun Four, boof, up in space. Oh, actually, or was it Leprechaun Four in the hood? I think yes, it was in the right. hood, isn't it? So the fifth was they in did space. A, they did a Jason, in space. Jason Voorhees. Yeah. Jason X was it? Right. Mm. So it's time that Freddy went to space, and imagine how awesome a tagline that would be for a Freddy film in space, because they already have that slightly over the top comedic aspect to them. Those films. Um, Plus, it would obviously be a, a famous horror tagline anyway. Um, so that could work. It could. It, the, the only thing is that he'd have a real advantage because it'll be like locked in hypersleep. So, yeah, I was going to say, if they start like off. No chance. Like... Even if they woke up <laughs> choked to death or something. Yeah, in cryogenic stasis, frozen in time. And he would be like, you are going to have a bad time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, but then, yeah. But then, I suppose most of the film could just be him. He's got such an advantage, and he's got so long to think about it. It could just be him on this spaceship, just just bumming around, really, until he decides to think up, concoct ingenious ways of killing the crew. That'd be quite enjoyable, actually. I could handle that. And, handle and they would be wandering around a spaceship for two hours. It'd be more interesting and... watching Chris Pratt doing it. And there would be a robot that's sort of kept kept obviously you know awake uh, in in the ship to do repairs and look after the crew as they sleep and it would be walking around and it would be i don't know what's happening but the crew seemed to be completely bricking their pants uh, because obviously there would just all be there like thousands of people in this ship that's been boosted off into space to start a new colony somewhere and everyone just being completely mentally tortured by freddy krueger but him not having the wherewithal to understand they're all having like really shitty nightmares and uh, and not being able to do anything about it Oh, that'd be quite good. Is, I think it'd genuinely be quite a good film. I <laughs> genuinely watch this. <laughs> I, I think actually, I suppose, is Robert England still alive even? I guess he is. Yes, but, yes he is. And I know for a fact he's been to Jubaraj and Cardiff Bay as well. But I wouldn't, <laughs> obviously, it's factoid, just like Mark Wahlberg's <laughs> been to Chinese and Abergandy. But, <laughs> but, um, and I know Danny I, Glover's been there as well, so... <laughs> Obviously, the Friday, not Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street 
reboot or whatever in 2010 or whenever it was was just pretty drab but did have jackie l haley mm. in that role and I, yeah. I'm, I'm fine with that i'm absolutely fine with that he's he's got the look he's creepy yep quick rock set in space yeah yeah i think yeah I, I wonder if there's it's a shame we haven't got like much reach in terms of uh celebrity bubble social bubble because it would be good to reach out to celebrities from like america and australia and just see you know oh have you been to uh, a fish called ronda in triorki for like a fish and chips or the codfather in ponty and just see like where they've been and like oh no i haven't been there actually no i haven't been there <laughs> But I've been to Raymond's on Boot Street. Oh, wicked. Thanks, Nicole Kidman. It, yeah, it'd be interesting to know where they've gone for takeaways in Wales. Well, Matt Damon's been on a bit of a press tour. I think he did a Mark Maron interview the other day, actually. And, uh, so maybe yes, you yeah, know, he might be up for it. He might be. He seems pretty well travelled. Yeah, I can't see any problem with me emailing Matt Damon and saying, oh, hey, Matt, uh, quick question. Don't want to take up too much of your time. But have you been to Chip Alley in Cardiff at all? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, um, what, what would that be called? So, in, it would be Freddy Krueger in space. No one can hear you dream. But mm. what would the what would the title be? Yeah, this is the tricky thing, isn't it? Things you can't really call it Nightmare on Elm Street because, <laughs> let's face it, it's not an Elm Street. <laughs> it's about as far from Elm Street as you could possibly get. Um, It'd have to be called Space Mayor, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> That sounds like it's about a fly, a horse flying through space, which would also be fine. You know, I'd watch that too. if he had a if he had a horse, he could fly through space. Yes, absolutely fine. It's, the film is really. Yeah, so if it was called now. if it was called Space Mare, right? Space Mare in space, no one can hear you dream. And then it's the them in the boiler room, and then they, uh, and then they're like a horse, and then like. And like, that sounds like Freddy Krueger. That sounds like Freddy Krueger dragging his nails across metal. But but uh, and then and he comes around the corner like, and he's like, yes, it's exactly what you thought. Uh, weirdly, <laughs> I'm on a horse. <laughs> and then, oh, wicked! It's quite cumbersome and awkward to get around this ship. <laughs> but I yeah, but I had to get in the double meaning of the title. <laughs> it would be so difficult to traverse a boiler room on horseback. <laughs> oh God. Um, okay, so the idea that this advanced spaceship with hypersleep capabilities would have like a boiler room as well, like steam just pumping out pipes, <laughs> and Gog. Wow. So I've only got three films to talk about, uh, and they're the first three Friday the Thirteenth films. No, they're not. So um, what um, what, what have you got more than me? Do you want to do you want to launch into I've it? Got a few. Uh, yeah. Uh, now, I suppose the big one that we're going to talk about is the Suicide Squad. But I've got I've got a few more, actually. I'll, let me just get a couple out of the way that I didn't cover last time. Um, OK. Oh, no, it's OK. Because I've still got I've still got one 70s sci-fi film to go, which I didn't mention last time. I don't think I talked about Soylent Green last time. I mentioned it, but I don't think I went through it in agonizing detail. Is that true? Because I know I have a tendency to just just start talking about a film I talked about last week. So, but, so what, what's the film? Soylent Green. You did you talk? I think you might have mentioned it last yeah, week. Yeah, I mentioned it in 
Because it's another Charlton Heston one, of course. Yes, yes, yes. So you haven't talked about Soylent Green then, yeah. Um, so Soylent Green was directed in 1973 by one Richard Fleischer. He's a veteran director. His highest profile films up to that point were like Fantastic Voyage and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Um, but he would also go on to direct um, Conan the Destroyer and Red Sonja as well. So, um, anyways, but in 1973, he he, uh, he made Soylent Green, um, which depicts New York City in the year 2022. And New York City has a population of 40 million. 40 million. Um, everyone is starving. Obviously, like a, a majestic meal well, in this. For, for attention or? <laughs> um, they, they have nothing to eat except what well, they'll eat these like government issued color coded rations basically um called red blue and yes green uh, made by this company called soylent obviously like mm. at one point they have um charlton heston and his housemate slash accomplice they have like this majestic meal and it's like a lettuce leaf <laughs> it's pretty depressing um so, but most people eat this these soylent rations, and they're made from just wrong reconstituted stuff, basically unknown reconstituted stuff. So Charlton Heston plays this detective with the world's tiniest scarf. It is minute. <laughs> I don't know what he's doing. He's kind of a scuzzy guy, um, possibly corrupt. Um, and then there's the this prominent businessman is murdered, and he starts investigating the soylent company. Um, and in doing so, he'll end up revealing a horrible truth. So this is a bit of a bona fide classic, really. It's, uh, it's a good film. It's, it's well written. It's, uh, darkly humorous. It's grisly. It's atmospheric. It's very satirical and really, really quite dark. It's very watchable. It's, it's got some brutal satire in it. I really like the scene, for example, where, (laughs) They, they're kind of handing out rations to this huge crowd and then they just run out and then the crowd start rioting and they literally bring in like diggers to scoop up the rioters. It's quite quite amusing. Um, everyone, it, it, it's, it's set, seems to be set in summer because everyone is constantly glistening with sweat. Charlton Heston's tiny scarf, it would be stinking. It's disgusting. It looks almost browned. Um, it's... A pretty dated perspective on the future, if that makes sense. I mean, mm. it just looks like an overcrowded 1970s New York. Um, the attitude to women is questionable. They all seem to be high class. Seventies, you say? Yeah. Um, like it's hard not to cringe when Charlton Heston effortlessly beds a woman who's 22 years his junior. Uh, and I mean, Charlton Heston looks pretty grizzled as well. So. Um, I I assume this was the assumption of where the sexual revolution of the late 60s, this was the assumption of where it would take society, I guess, maybe. Um, anyway, Charlton Heston's character, he's a complete a-hole, but that's kind of the point. And humanity and empathy are hard won in a world, essentially, where there are just too many people to care about. Mm. And, and Charlton, he... He basically delegates all of his detective work to his housemate. Um, so his elderly kind of housemate just 
goes and does all the work while Charlton goes out beating up men and threatening women and sleeping with girls young enough to be his daughter. Uh, the film also totally misses the mark on computers. It doesn't, it like the this accomplice of Charlton's, he does all his investigating just in a, a library through in encyclopedias. It's like, okay. Um, they also don't well, He hasn't got in Carter 97 with like, <laughs> like five seconds. CD-ROM. <laughs> on a 2X CD-ROM. Um, it, yeah, so they also don't predict automation, uh, as in given the amount of people around who need to be fed, it's it, everything seems very manually operated. This was actually something that Cloud Atlas, um, when Cloud Atlas essentially lifts wholesale um, the whole idea of Soil and Green, and it does correct that because in that there's a lot of it's much more automated world. Um, so anyway, this, yeah, Soil and Green is, is the kind of film that I think like HBO could make into a decent miniseries. I think there's enough here in terms of characters and world building. Uh, and it's well made. It's an enjoyable movie uh, with some with good scope and some decent action scenes. And I like how it blends sort of sci-fi with 70s paranoia in quite a unique way. So I enjoyed Soil and Green. Uh Although it doesn't appear to be available for free, so I had to pay cash money for that. It's um yeah, Solar Green has been on my radar probably for like twenty five years because it, it, I I was sort of when you were talking about the films last week and you mentioned that um what was the one with Mike Michael York in <laughs> Logan's the, Run Logan's Jesus. Run and and yeah. it, I I have no patience for those really um sort of druggy psychedelic 60s mm. 70s things they really go around. i want i want it to be quite minimalist and stark so i'm glad yeah. i'm glad that like you and you've watched it and said that it is it's really stands up i mean if there's a point in it where charlton heston takes his top off near that woman and he's just breathing in like a 50s boxer <sighs> then of course of course there is why wouldn't he he does get uh, his top off in all his films <laughs> well uh, thinking about it i mean yeah, I think he does actually, because he got Planet of the Apes, Omega Man, yeah, Soil and Green. He was a bit of a '70s sci-fi star, really, wasn't he? Yeah. Um, well, actually, I think you, Planet was '60s, but anyway. You were saying at the start of the film where they were they were drinking, uh, they were eating sort of like you know, Soylent Blue, Green, Yellow, and the and the poorest of Soylent Brown. Um, <laughs> is there is there a scene where it when they're all like, oh please, I need some Soylent Brown, anything? Um, I'll even have some Soylent. What colour is that? And then as they're riding in the streets, they're all being taken away in these diggers. Then it pans up a skyscraper. And at the top of it on a balcony is Mark Wahlberg holding a bag with a takeaway in that says Abba Kenvig on the side, laughing down at the masses. Ha ha ha. I've been to Abba Kenvig. Um, and Br- and Brit was in the director. It might have been an after credit scene. I wonder what the most prescient film of the of of the 70s and 80s is I've, I've got to say that like runaway um i suppose the that michael Crichton that was kind of his jam wasn't it yeah but i wonder i wonder what the most prescient film ever made is that would be really i'd really be intrigued mm. to, to know that runaway has got to be up there i mean 2001 a space odyssey was pretty impressive for the time because but that was mostly because of arthur c Clarke. it always helps if you've got like michael Crichton, if you've got like a Futurist, an futurist, yeah. like um, imagining these things because you know two thousand one and the the book as well. 
predicted like flat screens. Um, it even predicted um, like tablet computers. I think in the you see one in the film, but in the book it's described. I think it's called a newspad, and it describes how he's on the shuttle and he can get up to date mo- news within two minutes, which I thought was quite nice little touch but that's pretty crazy for that time considering home computers weren't even a thing the idea of actually having a tablet computer which can instantly connect to a news server is pretty impressive in 2001 is there a scene where they predict my hp laptop failing after a windows update last week i don't think specifically i think it was a different security update in that film so I'll have to text Arthur C. Clarke. Yeah, it was a McAfee that crashed it in that film, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, my, my He's bread, isn't he? He must be, yes. Yeah, John McAfee. He was bonkers. You should read about him. Oh, no, sorry. I thought you were talking about Arthur C. Clarke. He's definitely... Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, oh, yeah. Arthur C. Clarke, yeah. Whew. Oh, yeah. He's also um, gluten-free. Um, yeah, yeah he, he, was, he led a strange life. Um mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think he may have died his hair as well. My next film is Assault on Precinct 13, not that one. Because after watching um, watching it last week and describing the original by uh, John Carpenter as a perfect film, I think when I, 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 my expectations were suitably lowered when I watched the 2005 remake with Ethan Hawke and Lawrence Fishburne, especially because um, when I've been recently, in a recent interview I saw with... Um, Ethan Hawke, he specifically pointed out this film as the worst in his career and <laughs> said yeah. that it was oh not so much the worst of his career. He said that he could he could see that he was completely like just disinterested in in acting at that point and he was just a bit lost. But right. I gotta say that it doesn't really come through because have you seen this remake? I I've seen half of it. I just uh, I'll probably finish it at some point. <laughs> you, you won't. You know you don't go do. No, um well. I mean, it's a bit of a a bit of a a bit of a gem for me in some respects because obviously I'm a massive Ethan Hawke fan, and I also yes. like Lawrence Fishburne, and it's got Brian Dennehy in it, which I didn't expect, um, which is good. But it's it, it effectively plot follows the plot of the original with some different. Oh my god, I wish that when John Leguizamo talks, he'd open his mouth and not talk out of the side of his face. Whew, oh my God, this yeah, was a, in yeah. this film. In this film, where he must just spit on people all the time, and it's the same thing that the girl in um, Fear Street 1994 does. They kind of talk like this on the sides of the mouth, and you're like, just stop spitting on everyone, please. Um, uh, so yeah, it, it's, it's, it follows the same plot, and I was sort of expecting it to be pretty bad, but because you've got like Brian Dennehy, Maria Bello, you know, John Leguizamo, Gabriel Byrne, Lawrence Fishburne, and Lisa Nork, it's 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 pretty they kind of know what they're in for. So they sort of have a bit of fun with it. And it is still, you know, a, a, a cop in a, in a precinct holding off, holding off the horde. Uh, the, the, it's not, it's not the same film as the first one in that it, it's not these sort of dehumanized zombies just throwing themselves at it. And it's the soundtrack doesn't, I don't think ever hints back to the first one. So it's very much trying to be its own thing, but it just stands out as a, <laughs> ultimately a, a, a bog standard just sort of action film from the mid 2000s mm. it's not right. bad uh, i will say that the end kind of sets itself up for mm, a sequel and i thought yeah. mm, 
a, re- a remake of one of the most classic films of the 70s and you're setting yourself up for a sequel really so um yeah it's a bit silly but it's it's good they were good people in it doing good work and it's fun but i say that i remember enjoying it as i watched it even now a week later i'm struggling to remember things about it so it's very much like a, a sugar rush of a film i suppose but yeah a sugar rush of something that halfway through eating it you think it's like a sherbet fountain where you accidentally have some licorice halfway through and think oh yeah of course this is licorice going through the middle of this well i admire uh, the fact that you uh you adored the original so much and you're able to watch the remake so soon afterwards and i've never done that and actually I, I, get on with it yeah i think that i i, I love the because of course i think i said in the last episode that it's very it's, I've almost been holding off on watching Assault and Precinct 13, the, the original, because I, I do like John Carpenter so much, and it was like one that slipped through the net. Uh, we should really talk about his whole filmography one day. Um, but but I think I was such a big fan of it, and then I thought, if uh, to be honest, if if this cast wasn't in this film, if it was a load of unknowns, I think I probably would have thought, oh, do you know what, I'm not going to bother. But I am I am glad I watched it, and I can imagine I would watch it again in like maybe 15, 20 years. But I'm not going to. Uh, I, I wouldn't. I'd recommend it lightly if you're a fan of one of the actors in it. And of course, it's just good to see Brian Dennehy now. Yes, I seem to. He seemed good in it. He always. He's got gravitas, hasn't he? He's just always. Right. It's the same thing as in um, as in um, FX and FX Two, where mm. he's just got this sort of. Like in this and that, he actually references the fact that his Irish sort of heritage, and it's just mm. this. He's just got this like, considering he's such a bulky guy, he's just so amiable. Yes. Um, and he's just got like a real ease on screen, and it just makes me smile when I see him. So it was, it was, again, all these little things add up to me just enjoying the film because of who's in it, and as opposed to the script and the events within. Um, you like if you like Ethan Hawke, have you seen Good Kill? Sounds vaguely familiar, but that could ju- I might be thinking of any Steven Seagal film. <laughs> yeah, well, this is the one where he... I think it's got Bruce Greenwood in it as well. Good. Um, it is um, a film... He plays um, like a drone pilot, like a military drone pilot. And it's really okay. good. It's just really... Uh, I, don't, I just remember being really atmospheric, really well acted. And it's it's just a cool idea that this... He's like... He's a military guy who, who's just nece- necessarily cannot look his enemy in the eye, and it's just, just full, of, full of guilt and stuff. It's it's really good. He's really good in it, and um, so it's well worth to watch. I think the high good watermark kill. for me of his his canon is still Predestination, or mm, yeah. on a par with Sinister, <laughs> obviously because that film is perfect. So he's yeah, he's done a lot of good stuff. I mean, he did the. Um, before trilogy as well, which were all very very good. And so with Julie Delpy, yeah, and um, and he did with Richard Link later again. He did, yeah, Boyhood. So he's yeah, and of course he was in the Purge. I mean, he's he's got a he's got range. The lad's got range. Um, shall I quickly before we go on to the Suicide Squad? Uh, mm. Let me just quickly talk about the secret of my success which is on Prime at the moment. Um, this was made in 1987, um, and it is the most 80s film I've seen in some time. 
like the music, the technology, the whole rat race celebration. Um, it's also co-written by Jack Epps, who also defined the 80s with Top Gun and Turner and Hooch. Anyway, so Secret of My Success, it opens with just a wave of synth noise. And then it's just a relentless parade of 80s pop. Uh, some really cheesy ballads. We get Oh Yeah by Yellow twice, twice. And there's Bloody Walking on Sunshine. That song by um, Katrina and the Waves. I really, really struggle with that song. Yeah, I struggle with it a lot. And here it is. You know, it's a a comedic montage sequence. Anyway, the story (laughs) of it is this farm boy played by Michael, Michael J. Fox, leaves Kansas for New York City to seek fun and fortune. Um, but there's a hostile takeover of the company on the first day, and he's fired. He ends up convincing his mega corporation uncle to give him a job. So already we have some nepotism, classic 80s. Um, he falls for a, a woman who seems to be modelled on Princess Diana, um, uh, so he starts in the post room of this place um, and he hangs around with the the sidekick guy from To Live and Die in L.A., which was quite nice to see. His hair is still completely unmanageable, though. Um, there are various mild comedy situations along the way. Anyway, he so Michael J. Fox starts cheating his way into the upper echelons of the corporate structure. He literally makes up a role for himself um, on the top floor gets a secretary and stuff and pretends to be one of these uh what he calls suits um Mm. so he's faking it till he makes it basically so there's a lot of convoluted stuff it piles up and gets into a bit corporate espionage stuff and then it becomes a bit of an old-fashioned romantic farce really lots of quick fire screwball type dialogue um none of it particularly funny or anything but a lot of this film seems to be predicated on the very 80s idea that people are just fundamentally impressed by businessmen in suits like but then in our post american psycho post credit crunch era it does seem a little bit absurd that anyone would be awed by a suit and even more ridiculous that anyone actually aspire to be that but here we are that's the driving force of this movie um it's got some really weird editing in this film as well, by the way. It it just cuts back and forth between time, per- time periods without any indication of when they occur, except through our inference, but strange one. But there are loads of supposedly comical montages, but no real laughs, uh, so it's no hidden classic. It's really only recommended if you want to bathe in an ocean of sheer 80s-ness which is a reasonable desire, but um, it, as a film, it really hasn't got much going for it. Uh, <laughs> so, that's prime if you really want to watch it. I've got this image in my head now of, of you saying it cuts through time periods with nothing but I inference the guiders. And I could just imagine like Michael J. Fox being like his energetic self in this, like, yeah, I got I'm a suit, I'm a suit, guys. And then he turns around and looks out the window, and then it just goes dark, and then the camera pans down to like a lake, and then there's like um it's like a Michael J. Fox, like covered in mud, like what, like squatting in a cold, like washing his genitals, <laughs> like looking up, looking up at like the mountains, and then 
They're coming down the mountain for me. They know, like, they, they know I'm the wise man of the village. They know, like, they know my secrets. And then, and then it cuts again, and it's like a distant future. And it's Michael J. Fox, you know, is sort of walking across this really sand-swept desert towards this like, impo- impossible shape in the distance. And he pulls back the hood, and it's like, with no subtitles. <laughs> and it's just thousands of years in the future on an alien planet. Uh, See, that, is, that, would be, that would be better than unfunny, fast sequences in a tower block in New York. Uh, all right. Um, I've never even heard of that film. And I just want to point out the cover that I'm looking at is like a, a, a woman with obviously 80s red painted nails popping the cork on a bottle of champagne and Michael J. Fox is sort of riding riding the champagne in the sky. It is just like it it is unapologetically just like wallowing in capitalist success like that mm. it doesn't it, it's not like it ever gets to a point where you realise that oh actually they've grown as people I actually because I was kind of waiting for the moment when it would be like, okay, all this is completely shallow and superficial and he's just chasing this wealth. But actually, maybe it's time to value his kind of humble upbringing or something like that. No, forget about it. It's all about getting to the top, cheating your way to the top, fucking over the people to get there, which is what happens at the end. So, yeah. When when it get like stepping over the people to get there is that kind of is it even a, at the end is a you know a, a lesson learned or is it just haha look at which I am now? Well, there is a sense that the people they're screwing over uh, the older establishment folks, I suppose, and they I mean the stuff they've been doing is unethical, but it's not like now they're in the hot seat they're suddenly gonna you know make turn this into some like super ethical company there's no sense of that at all it's just like get rid of the oldies really um yeah not unlike scrooge right. um, um uh, yes go on. sorry go on um so i was, I was going to say but i mean is it time to talk about the suicide squad not that one but well actually that one because this one's got yeah. the in the title isn't it yeah well i've only got two and a half films left so yeah please i'm, I'm quite right. excited to hear your thoughts about suicide squad okay so this is the Suicide Squad. Oh, really quickly though, just you didn't—I don't think you mentioned it—but in uh, *Secret of My Success*, uh, Helen Slater's in it of Supergirl fame. So let's uh, right. thought I'd point that out. I recognise yeah. the name. I, um, I remember watching *Supergirl* as in the original film. Yeah. Oh, there was a film and and a series was there. I'm thinking about the '90s series. Really, I didn't know. I know there's a there's a there's a modern series. I didn't know about a '90s series, but there was definitely an '80s film. Now I remember watching that a lot when I was a kid, and think it was really cool. I suspect, I suspect it does not hold up. Just gonna say it. Before we t- before we talk about Suicide Squad, I just want to say something. Is um, and I know it talks about the Savalas, which we don't often dip into, but um. Over the weekend, I watched the Masters of the Universe Revelations TV show that's on the cartoon that's on Netflix, and it's got it's got a really cool voice cast. But there was more genuine threat and um, sort of impact of events in that film in the, in those five 20 minute episodes than there was in all of Suicide Squad 2016. 
I was more emotionally involved in that than yeah. So I just wanted to say that. It's but if you want to watch Suicide Squad for 2016, don't just watch Mass of the Universe Revelations, and you'll just like have a provably better time. I can't rem- even remember Birds of Prey. I think it might have been better than Suicide Squad 2016. I'm not sure. Well, if you if it's you don't remember it, but you don't hate it, then I suppose that does fall somewhere in the middle of the well, scales, doesn't it? Not remembering it and not hating it is pretty much my default response to any comic book movie, to be honest. But there you go. Ah. Um, but that's the fault of the movies, not mine, of course. Um, <laughs> so the Suicide Squad, I don't know. I don't have no background interest in the Suicide Squad as a comic book series. Is it a comic book series? I guess it is. Um, but I, I think that's okay because 90% of people watching it probably won't have any like working interest in the comics, I suppose. Um, so this one is written and directed by James Gunn of Slither and Super and Guardians of the Galaxy fame. Um, so it's sort of like a this is sort of a foul-mouthed, black-hearted God is the Galaxy, really. Um, so the plot is rudimentary, shall we say. It's a evil scientist slash world threat thing um, on this South American island, fictional South American island. Um, they're gonna. They're going in. Um, this the squad is going in to shut down a facility which houses uh, a big, one-eyed monster. Um, naturally, by the end, the monster escapes, and so the ending is all city smashing stuff. Um, the opening sequence is quite well done and quite disarming because you're, well, without giving too much away, you you basically you're led to believe you're watching one thing when actually you're just watching the distraction is quite a good visual and narrative joke. Um, but it's also immediately apparent that you're, that this is a sequel. It's not a reboot. Like, Oh, okay. Oh, it literally follows on then. Well, yes, because I, and I'm kind of inferring that really it's, it's like a, a subtle sequel or a subtle reboot because Without knowledge of the previous film, you probably wouldn't understand who what's going on. You wouldn't understand who Amanda Waller is, Viola Davis' character, um, or why she does what she does uh, at the beginning, because it's a very much a cold open. And it's the same with Harley Quinn, same with, I want to say Rick Flagg. Is that his name? Yes, it is. Joel Kinnaman, my boy. So, yeah. So, it's... you you. Without watching the first one, you wouldn't know who they are or why they are doing what they're doing. So anyway, so unless you treat it as a sequel, uh, you'd have to say that the film does a really bad job of contextualizing the squad's mission. Uh, I know this because I couldn't remember the first film and I was struggling. Uh, so, but anyway, the, the the real moral focal point in this film is Bloodsport played by Idris Elba and uh, he kind of replaces Deadshot really, Will Smith's character from the first film. Um, He's sort of a direct replacement really because he's this kind of naughty but nice guy with daughter issues. So, So the film is effectively remaking a big part of the original 
like a remake would do, mm. but whilst also relying on the original to provide the context for this, uh, for all of this. So it's kind of having its cake and eating it. Anyway, Holly Quinn is in this, and she's obviously she was very much the central character of the first one. She's much more of a side character in this. Um, and she's a lot further still from the Harley Quinn I know from the comics. Or the, I mean, I, I've got a couple of Harley Quinn graphic novels. They're modern ones, so they're very, very irreverent um, and very fourth wall breaking. And this is much more toned down Harley Quinn than, um, say, even Birds of Prey even the first Suicide Squad film. So she's more of just a mildly irreverent superhero in this. And she's a side character. I'm not even sure she serves a purpose in the story, but she's there. Uh, so I I found that Idris Elba was the only actor to really make an impact because he has a lot of gravitas and uh, his character's a bit less fun than Deadshot was, if not so many wisecracks, but he he definitely has weight to his character john cena plays someone called peacemaker john cena has no comic timing or delivery and yet he is somehow getting his own tv series based on this character i i'm surprised but you got david no i don't know how to pronounce his name david dust malkian you know him if you saw him oh i'll bloody look at him then definitely will know his face he's a very strange looking gentleman but he's pretty cool he always plays like these side characters he plays someone called polka dot man um but he hardly says anything um rick flag in this is also boring because he doesn't really have much to say or do and his characterization again rests basically on what was established in the david ayer film Sylvester Stallone is also in this. He plays this walking shark guy. Um, but he's but the the character is too stupid to speak more than about two words at a time. So it could be anyone, to be honest. I didn't know it was Sylvester mm. Stallone until afterwards. And then you've got Peter Capaldi is the bad guy. He's plays someone called The Thinker. And it's kind of, I don't know whether ironic is the right word, but he looks like um, a creation from a Doctor Who um like episode because he's got these weird things poking out of his head and he's not really he, he's just there to provide exposition really um doesn't really have an impact um uh so the humor and this is where the, the problems really begin so the the humor is utterly juvenile like for example, there's like a, a whole minute of screen time where they discuss the logistics of consuming a beach full of dicks. It's very, it feels like very early Kevin Smith. That type of oh, film. dear me. Childish. Ooh. And L- like, is it as if they're trying to like, oh, this is what like, you know, like cool people talking is like, don't you wish you could be this cool? Oh, f- yeah, it's like, yes, that is that, that's that's bang on. It's like. It's like. You're watching. It's like watching these supposedly funny conversations between these characters and hoping they're hoping that young people like teenagers, I guess, will look at that and think, oh, 
that's just like our conversations. That's the kind of conversation. This is have. this is. I'm getting super bad flashbacks here with this. <laughs> okay. Um, uh. Yeah. Um, it's 132 minutes long. So the reason it's so long is not because of like deep characterization or anything. It's because it keeps stopping for for these supposedly comic interludes where the characters will. They'll remark on upon how crazy the events are that they're seeing, or the camera will just focus on their stunned faces because what they're seeing is just too wacky for words, which becomes tiresome. I won't lie. The comedy I found it it's, it it falls into three categories. Basically, you've got this extreme splatter violence, or you've got slow motion like wackiness, or indeed slow motion violence with ironic upbeat music. Or you've got characters talking at length about how weird another character or event is. It seems to fall into these categories. And uh, by the fifth time of each one, you're like, okay, we get it now. We get it. We, we've got the formula. And, and the thing is, right, the so-called craziness of this film is just, it's skin deep because actually it, it's a film that's deeply conventional in terms of its plot structure and its very mainstream sense of morality. Uh, there's always in the pre-release kind of hype for a film like this, there's always this rush of excitement when they announce, oh, it's an R-rated movie. And you'd think, well, that's a good thing, considering the Suicide Squad 2016 was weirdly, conspicuously bloodless. We've talked about this before, the way that the enemies are all just like, <laughs> like walking Ash. statues and yeah like, yeah it's weird um but this but i'd say the extreme gore here it, it's just a smoke screen like it's it's just violence to paper over the complete ordinariness of the events underneath it it's it's a film with a veneer of an, an anarchic spirit but it does nothing to embody that spirit at all um other than the utterly superficial stuff. So there are reasons that this is not even as good as the first Suicide Squad. And, and they are as follows, but there are others as well. It's it's longer. Okay, only by 10 minutes, but still, why was the first Suicide Squad even that long? But anyway, uh, the Harley Quinn is just watered down yet further. Uh, there's no Will Smith, sadly, although, yes, Idris Elba is very, very good, but he's just not quite as much fun as Will Smith. Um, Michael Rooker and Jay Courtney are in it for about five seconds. So why why would that be a thing? Why would you have why would you put Michael Rooker in a film and not not make him the main character? It doesn't make sense. The thing is, I'm assuming like yeah, Michael Rooker should be the main character and everything. But um, with um, w- with Jay Courtney, the problem I'm assuming he gets killed off, but the problem is with the first one that he didn't need to be there. So Jay Courtney's entire like career, these last two films is because like Killer. We said earlier on that Killer Croc, Jay Courtney, uh, sorry, uh, sorry, Killer Croc, Katana. There are like a multitude of characters that didn't need to be in the first one. Yeah. So you bring in Jay Courtney in this one, almost as if like right, okay, now we're going to give him something to do, and then you pull the rug away. It's like oh, so that's just now he's basically just a laughing stock. Yeah. His character, yeah. Um, so continuing the list, um, 
this time there are no legitimate bad guys at all mm. this time uh which was a bit of an issue with the first one that they're not really that bad but at least there was evidence that they had done awful things this time they're just reluctant heroes who swear a bit honestly there's one character called Ratcatcher 2 who is sim- is just a nice person a nice a really nice person and that's it it's not there's no sense of her being a bad guy at all um, who are they played by sorry uh, Ratcatcher 2 I, uh, I'm not sure should we find out oh, right. yeah go on just, I just have yeah, it's, um, uh, Daniela Melchior do we know who that is oh Melchior sounds like um, hang on no she's a it looks like she's a newcomer uh, Portuguese lady. She's fine. Oh, I pr- I probably um, r- uh, recognize the name from when I watched Spider Man to the Spider Verse. That's mm. probably where it is. Yeah, sorry. Um, go on, Karen. Uh, so yeah. Um, and I'd say that the story in this one is much more simplistic, and this and the, and the storytelling is probably weaker. It's it's quite a poorly paced movie with very frenetic action punctuated by really tiresome extended punchlines. It's also dramatically very linear. I mean, Suicide Squad 2016 at least had an ebb and flow to it, even if it was junk. Uh, so, yes, I found the Suicide Squad, I found it to be utterly empty and formulaic, conspicuously unfunny. Uh, overlong, boring, but Idris Elba was cool. I think. I mean, I am. I'm obviously going to watch this. Mm-hmm. Everything you said though is at least like at least you're passionate about, and you can state. I don't know. You, you're passionate in your in your dislike of it. I think the problem I had with the, with Suicide Squad 2016 was, I felt nothing. I just felt like a grave, <laughs> endless void as I watched it, and and I think. Apart from when Will Smith was on screen, and I, every, yeah. every time anyone else is on screen, I just like wish they were they, they were in a better film, um, because I still think that Jay Courtney, um, again, I think he was the best thing about um, what was that film he was in with Werner Herzog and the one we don't like, Jack Reacher. Jack Reacher, yeah. He was the best thing in that film, and so. Well, I remember he, thinking when I was watching Jack Reacher, he should be playing Jack Reacher because he clearly <laughs> is someone who actually matches the description. Because he is six foot, and yeah. well, or over six foot, and built massively. Anyway, but yeah, yeah, but um, but yeah, I, I I will watch this because I assume this is a film that will. Whereas the first one was just kind of a bit of a like a sad balloon, this one at least like has some sort of energy, regardless of how misplaced it is from what you said. So it's one of those things, isn't it? That if you do find that sort of sophomoric humor funny, then you'll get a lot out of it than you and probably I will. But yes, I, I, at least this will appeal to some people. Yes, there is. Because I remember Superbag yeah. and Clerks, like uh, not in this podcast. We've had conversations in the past where I used to like watch um, not so much Clerks, but like Dogma and More Rats quite often in my teens. And then returning yeah. to it now, it's painful. It's painfully bad. Not so yeah. much bad. It just just doesn't represent me as a person. And it, and it highlights not only all the things I dislike about comedy films, but all the things I dislike about people. 
So yeah. it, it like with this sort of film, if the humor doesn't click with me, I, I like when I watched Superbad, I know I had a group of friends who thought it was absolutely brilliant, and I thought you're you're liking it because you think this is how if you were being filmed, you would be this witty and the retorts would be this this snappy and quick, but mm. it's not. It's just kids swearing and then they're having a go at each other. It's not funny, um, and I think that's probably what's going to happen with this. But yeah, I'll uh, I'll watch it anyway when it's on Netflix or Prime or Channel 5. I'm not sure it is discernibly worse than 2016, but it's it's being weirdly overrated, in my opinion, um, in critical circles, and I'm not sure Oh, why. really? Yeah. I'm oh. not clear why. Uh, I mean, I've, you know, people saying it's the best DC film in years, but it's not really saying much, is it? Yes, I mean, uh, when was the, what was the last good DC film? Really, it's going to be an animated one, Ruben. I'm not going to lie to you. It's, it will have to be an animated one because I <laughs> honestly cannot think of a a live action one that I've enjoyed. I mean, I, I know Aquaman gets a lot of hype, but that was that was trash. I haven't. I, like I was, was almost. I almost watched that the other day. It looked day, like it was filmed on green screen, like Albert Pean filming Interstellar: Civil War. So you've got Suicide Squad working backwards. You've got uh, what's that? Zack Snyder's Justice League, Wonder Woman eighty four, Birds of Prey, Shazam, Aquaman, Justice League, Wonder Woman, Suicide Squad, Batman v Superman, and Man of Steel. Wonder Woman was good. Well, it was like, decent. Uh, yeah. So yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, I I, I don't know. I I feel I feel weird and slightly faint when we talk about. Um, Comic, comic book movies. films because I just feel like I don't know I just feel like I'm not genetically designed for them. I I always just yeah. expect more. I think there's so much hype, so much advertising, so much money thrown at them, and such. It always, especially the ones with large casts. I always just think it's it's even if it's a two-hour film, it, it's it feels like it's going to be too diluted. And at yeah. the best, they're going to be seven out of ten films because they're so homogenized because of how much money's riding on them. So I always feel like I'll never never find anything in them i think what dc need to do is focus on things like joker because i don't even i didn't even consider that as far as dc movies are concerned but of course that is that's the kind of film that i want to see um you know using these very lucrative uh brands to really explore weird or dark territory i hope the batman matt reeves the batman you know does something similar uh i just think they've got i wish they'd stop aping marvel i mean i know they've kind of thrown out the whole idea of a shared universe but marvel is its own ecosystem and it's got you know it's got enough fans to just sustain it uh but they gotta i, I wish they'd stop going down that route because it, it like you say, everything is diluted. And I get that, you know, in something like the Suicide Squad, yeah, you can have main characters killed off, which it does much more liberally than, liberally than the new 2016 version, I will admit. But it kind of, it only gets to do that because these are essentially like... Throwaway characters. characters. Throwaway yeah. characters, it's like you just chuck them in. I mean, the fact that one of them is called Ratcatcher 2, and the joke is made about that, is... Um, quite telling in itself. So, mm. 
Um, More Joker, less Guardians of the Galaxy. More Joker, less jokes. This is Guardians of the Galaxy. I want to say Guardians of the Galaxy light, but it's not really. Well, light humour, I'd say. Like, Guardians of the Galaxy kind of was more appealing to me, even though it wasn't particularly funny, but it was more appealing because at least it had an essential wholesomeness to it which is completely lacking from Suicide Squad. So it's got the cynicism and the juvenile humour. I am going to talk about Chaos, a 2005 movie starring Jason Statham and Ryan Philippe. Please do. This film is fantastic, Rupert. Um, I don't know why I don't, I don't think it's one of the Oscars. Let me just scroll down. I watched, I checked this on because, and this was the basis of it, right? I thought I'd seen all of Jason Statham's films. And I said, oh, Faye, this is perfect because I fancy Jason Statham and you fancy Ryan Philippe. And, I, and as we were watching it, Faye said, actually, do you know what? Because I fancy Ryan Philippe and Cruel Intentions and now I'm in my 30s, now I fancy Jason Statham more too. So we were really bonded over that, obviously, just to go, just get the passage of time. Um, but yeah, this film, I checked it on thinking it was going to be a totally bog standard thriller. Uh, mm-hmm. But it, it's actually, I think, one of the best films that I would suggest watching with a group of friends that I've come across in in many a month. There's so much, there's so much to drink in, to the point that I've actually made a list of things that I wanted to talk about. Um, so I'm just gonna. I'm just, so the the plot is that at the start of the film, there's uh, uh, some sort of police chase going on, and there's a the the. The vehicle being pursued crashes. Um, the guy pulls out a gun and he's got a hostage. And we see Jason Statham shoot, and it and it ends. And then we see that Wesley Snipes and his crew have robbed a bank, and they demand that Jason Statham's character, who's been sort of decommissioned from the police, turns up, and he rocks up, and uh, is sort of reinstated temporarily just to sort of help out with this. Uh, they end up cutting the power, as Jason Statham says, don't cut the power and rush in, that's what they want. That is what Wesley Snipes and his team wants. A bomb goes off and they escape in the confusion. And then it's he is partnered with Ryan Philippe as a sort of young buck to try mm. and try and track the gang back down. That is the effect, that's the plot. Um, the film <laughs> seems to just forget that it's a really sort of like by the numbers action film and just completely and utterly treats itself as a really cerebral (laughs) um (laughs) like mystery with like lots of twists and turns and Mm -hmm. it is quite frankly all the better for it um (laughs) uh, it's very difficult this is a 16 year old film and i feel quite confident in just creaking the rules a little bit and being a bit spoiler-tastic with this because what I have to say really rides on knowing the twist at the end, right? Mm. And the twist at the end... So, yeah, skip forward, like, five, six minutes if you listen to this and you don't want to know. Um, I'll give it a second if people do that. The twist at the end is that Jason Statham is the mastermind behind all this, right? right? But it's one of those films where his... It's called chaos and the film relies on the chaos theory constantly refers to it and indeed a point at the end which i'll get to it rides on on the chaos theory and yet it's actually just a really like um really carefully 
carefully po- plotted um, plan that is just yeah, it just relies on massive happenstance. So it's not chaos theory; it's just really carefully plotted. So it's oh, it's the, the butterfly effect effect. <laughs> <laughs> mm. So the film relies on massive coincidences, and uh, the, the, Ryan Philippe, right? There's so many points in this where I almost I thought, hang on, I kind of questioned what I'd just seen, but I think it's down to the way it's been edited and put together. I don't know if they are trying to sort of pull the rug up from the viewer's feet, but it, it, people literally contradict what's happened in previous scenes. Um, Ryan Philippe is called Shane Decker, right? Decker, which obviously always reminds me of David Cronenberg's character in Nightbreed. Um, it, Decker, that is, isn't it? Um, he is someone who just walks around just like writing notes down right it's his first couple of years in the force and people say just seem to have no idea who he is but yet multiple people in the film that he meets the cops obviously they're involved in this case that's trying to get solved trying to track down wesley snipes and his crew they they know his father they say oh, I, w- I was a partner with your dad for years blah blah and then it's mm. like but what but you never knew he had a son you never met him as he was growing up and it happens often. Like even Jason Statham's like, "Oh, your father was a good cop. Yeah, I, I didn't realize you were his son." It's like, really? Because if you've been partnered with him for years, surely at one point he would have like, when you were doing a steak, or just mentioned that he's got a son. Yeah, he let it um, slip at some point, wouldn't it? Yeah. Did you see what he said there? No, I didn't say anything. But um, <laughs> <laughs> from Tontig. Um uh, there's there's a stakeout where they're doing a stakeout in, a, in a, a, this sort of rural home where they're trying to track down one of the, the gang members. Where kind of quite a key plot point happens. So if you're just trying to, um, there's even the way that we, we're taken into the scene is odd because you've got, if you imagine this in your head, you've got um, a house on like a crossroads, right? It's like a small sort of dirt track big enough for one car to drive past. And they've got their, their outdoor dining set on the opposite side of the grass of that, of their house. So if they wanted to like go in and get the catcher, they'd have to like actively cross a road to do it. Um, you just like put it in your own garden. You've got plenty of room. That was bizarre. Um, and then you see a car in the drive, uh, like in plain view of these two machine gun toting men who were sort of patrolling the uh, outside and, uh, of this, this farmhouse. And then it cuts to Jason Statham and, and like two other police cars with Ryan Philippe and his stuff. And, and you can just see that they're like sort of jet, like just casually underneath some trees. They're about five feet away from this house at night. And, and I thought they'd just be able to see you uh, to the point that I had trouble like in my head working out the geography because when mm. when it kicks off and they're forced to rush this house they are there within nanoseconds you don't even see them get out the cars they are just jumping <laughs> over the balustrade and they're just in a firefight and then the reason they do that the reason that they jason statham is like right stay in the cars you know wesley snipes will turn up just have a bit of patience and then they're all sort of getting a bit antsy let's just go and arrest them and he's like no we need to wait for wesley to turn up one of the woman that one of the police woman's phones just goes off and the and then the criminals hear it and that's what kicks off the fight. Fast forward twenty minutes and the woman whose phone went off says, Oh, he was right, we shouldn't have rushed in. And I thought no, you, you didn't rush in, your phone went out off. You were forced to, you're forced into action. I've seen <laughs> I I watched it like literally like ten, ten minutes ago. Um the, so you got you've got an interrogation in it with a with a cop who works in the evidence room who is really combative and suspicious but ultimately innocent so you've got these characters that exist and act outside of what they actually are just to add a mystery to the film when they Uh would just say 
I did. I didn't. I didn't sign that. Oh, but it doesn't match the signature on his passport or driver's license. You just say, "I don't know. I didn't. I didn't write it." But no, he just kicks off and just acts really suspiciously and defensively. Um, most damning of all is that halfway through the film, we we Jason Statham, by the way, lives in a house that he could not afford on a cop's salary. At the start, when Wesley Snipes says, "I want to speak to Jason Statham," and they say, "Right, let's go and get him," then they drive out of a city. I assume it's New York, so you're talking a good like hour to hour drive out of a city to a private lake with a jetty and boat, where Jason Statham lives in a glass fronted house with about fifteen foot ceilings. And I thought, I don't think that you'd be able to afford that, especially because he's a single man on his own mortgage. Um, right. Uh, you should be yeah. in a caravan on the beach. Everyone knows that. Everyone knows that. Yeah, with next to Mel Gibson. Um saying, you have a whack then. Possibly masturbating, not sure. <laughs> um, when we do our Donna ret- retrospectives, then we'll, we'll, we'll really get to the come out with a definitive bit. answer. Um so yeah, so uh, most damning of all. The, the shoot at the start where we see the the the, the guy with a gun to a, a girl's head is in the car accident at the start the car crash and the police chase we see Jason Statham shoot and it fades out when it shows that Jason Statham is kind of in it it, it sort of r- r- shows it again but we see that Wesley Snipes is his partner and shoots the girl and then Jason Statham shoots the 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 sort of suspect the perp but Jason Statham is hated and vilified throughout the police department for, for like killing an innocent. But mm. there was a camera crew on that on that bridge with when that happened, and they were surrounded by other police officers. So it, it doesn't it really doesn't add up. Like everyone would have seen what actually happened. Yeah. And no and no one at all, even though it's set in the same police precinct, which is why he's so hated, no one seems to recognize Wesley Snipes, even though he's on and off camera, walking around in front of CCTV, getting in shootouts with all these police. No one says, That's your old partner with a different name, that is. That's Wesley Snipes says. That's where this snipes is. Um, I thought he was uh, in prison at that time, but there you go. Uh, I think that was later. When was this? This was 2005. So it would have been around the time of the Blade thing, wouldn't it? Blade Trinity. Um, yeah, and so so all this is going on, and there's, there's nothing really adds up. And there's a point where Ryan Philippe, because he smells, literally, because he smells one of Jason Statham's tenors, he realises he's dodged because... Um, he smells something that he leaves down for a tip, and he's like, "Hang on, that doesn't smell bon- That smells bonky, genuinely." Really? He goes to, yes, he goes to okay. Jason Statham's house and pulls out a book called *The Chaos Theory*, and he looks at this book, and it is highlighted. And I think it's like James <laughs> Glick or something. It's highlighted all the things that Ryan Philippe has randomly been just writing down in his book the notebook throughout this whole film that people have been saying so at the start when wesley snipes is asking for uh, jason statham and saying oh you know it's chaos theory and just same words he's like ryan philippe just is writing down like phone answer <laughs> chaos and then and then he Abacambic. says oh, the chinese mark Wahlberg, <laughs> and he's a fish called ronda and he's writing all this stuff down and then and then it just kind of comes into its own at the end of the film. But mm. I was watching it thinking the only like this benefits no one. So the plot, right, for Wesley Snipes and Jason Statham to plan this out, they would have had to say, right, you're going to have to do a bank robbery. 
ask for me to come to you and they're going to have to, which they probably wouldn't do, reinstate me as a police officer and put me as head detective on the case, right? So just assuming that would happen, even though he's just so vilified. And then he would have said, right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make you say certain words like chaos, theory, James Glick, and the hope that I am assigned a new partner that writes these words down. And then at some point... He's going to have to smell my money in my wallet somehow. And then he's going to have to break into my house, suspicious of me, pull out a specific book in which I've highlighted key sentences, which will then lead him very specifically to us and realize that we're bent cops. And at that point, Wesley Snipe should have said, if we don't do that, what we're planning will go far smoother. Because what you just said, Jason, benefits no one. <laughs> And it was it's that that makes the film possibly film of the week <laughs> because it's constant. It is constant in this film. The things that happen are constant and are marvelous. And this needs to be watched with a group of people. It doesn't sound chaotic exactly. It sounds just more like an unlikely series of events. The Maybe plot is chaotic. Or... Yeah, yeah. Because um, <laughs> it, it just the plot in the film is more chaotic than the. Um, yeah, than the film itself is. It's just fantastic. It's yeah, it's definitely one to watch with friends. Yeah, this is. I'm gonna have to watch this. I, I it's one I've always skipped past because I just it just I just assumed it was gonna be utterly generic, but from the sounds of it, it's bloody brilliant. Um, yeah. What is that? Is that on Prime by any chance? That is. Oh, I won. Oh, you know what I'm like. It's either Prime or Netflix. Mm. I think Netflix. Okay. The fact that I've watched three films this week and I still can't remember. No, it's, ne um, it's Netflix. Okay. Well, I, I'll switch over to Prime then to talk about the intergalactic adventures of Max Cloud. Which I've also watched, by the way. Okay. So we can really uh, get hip steep in this. Uh, it Well, it's... The, the headline is, it's, it's a woefully unfunny fantasy sci-fi spoof. Uh, is all I've got to say about it, but it, I will talk about it some more. It's by someone called Martin Owen, who sounds like an actor from EastEnders or something. But anyway, he is. His other credits are a bunch of micro-budget horrors and thrillers with terrible IMDb scores. One of them, Killers Anonymous, features Gary Oldman, and he looks bored on the poster. I don't know that man, honestly, time. he's probably just on the phone in Russia. Honestly, that's the last couple of films I've yeah. seen him in. Yeah, probably. Um, so anyway, the title of this film, The Intergalactic Adventures of Max Cloud, it refers to a fictional 1990 video game, which is being played by this uh, Brooklyn teenage girl. Um, in the game, Max Cloud, in the game, which is which is both represented on screen uh, on the CRT TV as uh, like a 16-bit video game, but we also see it live action, if you like. So in the game, Max Cloud is played by Scott Adkins and his hapless Eww. sidekick crash land on a prison planet, I think. Yes, um, yes. And the girl who's playing the game is sucked into the game and she enters the body of the sidekick. Um, now, in the real world... The girl's friend comes round and starts controlling her using the video game controller. And here's the first problem for me. Um, because 
it seems at first that she has control over her avatar, right? Mm-hmm. In this game. But I then, know exactly where this is going. But then her friend picks up the controller and suddenly he needs to control her, it seems. So how much control does he have now? And how much control does she have? It's never made clear. And, and Especially with times, a D-pad with three buttons on a mega exactly. Other times he's like switching characters and, it, and sometimes he seems to be controlling Max Cloud himself. The rules are not well established and it's a real problem for the whole film. So anyway, Max Cloud... He has to find a way off the planet. He fights bad guys. Yeah, there are fight scenes that seem to be trying to emulate stuff like Mortal Kombat and Streets of Rage. And so the avatars will suddenly have these really stiff animations, even though they don't the rest of the time. It's mm-hmm. one of those films with a very generalized sense of what games it's kind of trying to um, depict. Uh, it has this weird musical score, which is very plinky plonky and whimsical, like a kid's film. But the film is absolutely not for kids because there's loads of swearing and over the top violence. Um, Adkins' character is amusing for about 10 seconds. Uh, like the fact that he refers to himself in third person. Uh, but <sighs> the main kid, the, the sidekick, looks like Rob Schneider, I found. And it was about as annoying. And then there's John Hannah. I thought he looked like a young Michael Sheen. Yeah, okay, we can we can run with that. But he has the 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 wit of Rob Schneider, unfortunately. <laughs> I would agree um, with that. John Hanna looks just embarrassed as the main bad guy. Yeah. Whose name is Revenger or something like that. Yes, yes. There's yes. one scene where he's doing like an exercise video and it's like, oh god, John, what are you doing? Uh and it's all very green screen and all of the supporting cast are very amdram. This, this script is deeply unfunny and juvenile and it's really sarcastic and self-referential and there's this just lamentable banter between the boy in the bedroom and the girl in the game. There's zero comic timing from the actors or indeed through the editing where you get the problem of, which you, it makes you realise how important editing is in a in a comedy film because in this film this this constant like dead time within the frame if you sort of mean where yeah yeah uh, actors aren't necessarily hitting their beats but something something could be done with the editing to make it more snappy you know uh i do like i did like how the orchestral score turned into chip tune when we see the game on the screen and the game itself is an all right representation of 16 bit although it's more like 32-bit, to be honest, but um, that was okay. I've got no problem with the cheap sets and the uh, silly costumes and stuff, but I do have a problem with like the scene, for example, where they face a boss, um, but, we, but we see it in the 16-bit game. We can see it on the screen, but they don't even try to present it in the actual kind of live action part which i thought was just a bit lazy but overall i just thought i i didn't understand who this film was for because it's not suitable for kids um young adults will think it's just lame compared with someone like say guardians of the galaxy and then millennials like us will just find it immature and unfunny so i don't know who it's for it doesn't it seems they, pointless there was this was um this was a film that i mean i obviously i'm a scott adkins fan and and if you want to watch him at his best it would be in something like avengement 
or you know, mm-hmm. Ip Man Four when because what he is is an extremely good martial artist, and what he isn't is a comic actor. Mm-hmm. And I think in this, what when I was I said to Faye like, oh, let's check this on, and I and I sold it to her. She said that Scott Adkins is going to be a martial arts film, and I said, D-d-d-d-d-d. no, it's it's about video games, and she was like, oh, okay, but <laughs> but um, so it, it and it was on, and I it was one of those films where I was I felt embarrassed including tommy flanagan um who's been in some good stuff i felt mm. embarrassed for the film it, it, you could you could i got the impression you could tell that everyone signed up thinking oh this will be a bit of fun and the moment they got on set they were like oh no this is yeah. not good um it, it, and, and also going back to the whole i know i'm i know that we're both gamers and a, and a bit nerdy but it's like no one it's like the no one in the film including the writer um understood the, it's it's like it was an idea that everyone got involved in without having any like intrinsic knowledge about gaming and how it works mm. because for example you know they say no, re- reload your gun press r1 and it's a mega drive pad it's abc and start so yeah. it wouldn't have r1 and it's a basic thing it's a nerdy thing but why have that there and w- when when it's you know they're in they're they're represented in this 16-bit side on sort of basically walking through corridor after corridor mm. But then he's constantly like rolling the D-pad and pressing all the buttons, and you think it just—it just—it yes. just, doesn't help. It doesn't help. No, uh, like and these the are the details that nerdy people notice. Would have fun with. I was. I know. Like, yeah, we'd we'd really like to see the. Uh, yeah, the the att- uh, attention to detail, but there is no attention to detail. No. So yeah, that's. It, mm-hmm. the, uh, you've. I could. I could see a few more things that I picked up on, but what I ultimately, what I came away. With, from the film thinking right is that it reminded me of a black mirror episode with a layer missing um i felt like i felt like it was like this cheesy bad space comedy that was like almost purposefully badly acted and cheap walking around these like cardboard sets but it felt like there needed to be another layer to it that would that would make sense and fill it out but there really wasn't and yeah i just it was just embarrassing it's probably the most embarrassing film he did another film i think called interceptor basically scott adkins need to fucking stay away from space that was the one where he had really overly plucked eyebrows and it was just him sitting in a corridor um Mm. peeling up the carpet and you're like (laughs) you're like come on now guys you don't have to go to space for that um so yeah i I think it's a massive there's no it doesn't like you say this will appeal to no one i yeah it's baffling to me it's so ill-conceived uh anyway it's called the intergalactic adventures of max cloud and it's on prime if anyone for some reason wants to watch it but it was my introduction to scott adkins but i won't hold it against him I, I I'd like you to watch Avengement on Amazon Prime yeah. if you wouldn't mind because that that's his best film. It's a very clearly his best film. Okay. Um, uh, oh, many... it's my turn. It's, I've yeah. got one and a half left. Okay. I've got two left. Oh, nice. So yeah, we'll, we'll both do two. Um, I watched Standoff with uh, uh, Thomas Jane and Lawrence Fishburne. Sorry, I was waiting for my screen to load up. Then uh, Thomas Jane and Lawrence Fishburne, two actors. Who I really like Thomas Jane especially, but he's—I don't know—he's had a bit of a run of these weird sci-fi films, and he's gone more into TV. And I think I watched a couple of dodgy films he was in. So when this was released in in 2016, I purposefully didn't watch it because I thought, ah, oh, 
Do I want to watch another Thomas Jane film where he's just like wasted? Um, but this, I actually really enjoyed this film um, because it, it it is. I remember at the time reading about it and thinking, oh, it's just Thomas Jane and Lawrence Fishburne in a house, like literally having a standoff. And I thought that sounds boring, but actually it's <laughs> really good fun. Um, so the, the the film starts off and there's a little girl called Bird who was dropped off by someone to go to a, um, she's obsessive with a camera, constantly taking pictures of things. And she's going to a grave to visit her parents and uh, take a few pictures. And she sees Lawrence Fishman, who's a hitman, killing everyone, quite frankly, in, the fun- in a funeral party across the way and burying them. And she takes a picture of him, which he is keen to get back because his obviously his livelihood just relies on being completely anonymous. She runs across a field and into Thomas Jane's house, who is just a grieving alcoholic father. Um, he gets shot in the leg. And the whole film is basically Thomas Jane at the top of the stairs with a shotgun with one shell in it. Uh, and there's only one way up. And Lawrence Fishburne at the bottom heckling him and just saying, look, I'll let you live uh, before you bleed to death if you just give me the girls uh, so I can kill her and take her camera. And that is it, pretty much. And it is a testament to the two men involved that it never feels boring. It's it's mm-hmm. under 90 minutes. But you've got... Um, Thomas Jane is a, a veteran who is, has lost his son through... Quite frankly, it's the first person I know who's lost this son because he's too busy to clean up his garden. Um, and his wife as Frank Boft. So he's just him by himself. And... Lawrence Fishburne sort of starts off as this uh, this very straight hitman, but basically almost out of boredom because of the standoff, just starts boozing because Thomas Jane's got all the stuff packed up. He's just clocking it back and just gets lazy, and obviously that leads to the events of the film. It is, if you really stopped and thought about it, you could, there's probably other ways that um, that the film could have been resolved pretty quickly at the start, but if you sort of go with that initial uh, high-concept premise... You're left with actually just a pretty fun thriller that is literally two men at the foot and the top of a staircase just shouting at each other. And as long as those two men are Lawrence Fishburne and Thomas Jane, I'm completely on board with that. I will say as well, there's also the music in this film is really, really good. Um, It's by someone called, I think it's called, his name is something, Wintry. Um, The music is fantastic and there are some really nice shots the, of um, there's a bit where the, the girl goes upstairs in the attic and there's a nice slow zoom when she's just in the corner uh, of the attic and the music is just this really weird I want to find out who does it because I want to give him a bit of a shout out because I, I very specifically noticed the music because it never it's always it's almost a bit wry coodery, a bit it always seems a bit off and it gives it keeps the scenes interesting even though you, like I said you're just watching them shout up a staircase I cannot find the man who did the music. It's I think it's Aaron Wintry or something. But um yeah, the music is awesome and it's shot really well. And it's a it needs to be seen by more people, really. It's directed by Adam Alaka, who I've never heard of before, but I will definitely be looking into more of his stuff. I've just seen that it's got a thirty six percent score on Metacritic. It's clearly a better film than that. So Yeah, but so's Predator. So what do they know? They know nothing. So yeah, that's my last that's my last main film and i've got i've decided throughout this um podcast to to talk about rust creek because i feel like i've seen enough of it to make a comment on it so i've got one left okay all right well uh i'll continue the 
video game theme with Super Mario Brothers, which is on Prime. <laughs> this is the ill-fated 1993 live-action movie directed by the people who created Max Headroom in the 80s. So the writing was on the wall, really, but there you go. So the story, what story there is, is that the meteorite didn't wipe out the dinosaurs. They were simply transported to another dimension, obviously. So anyway, so these plumbers named Mario and Luigi, uh, who live in Brooklyn, uh, they find a way to that other dim dimension through a portal. Um, Bob Hoskins is Mario and John Leguizamo is Luigi. Does he talk through gritted teeth on the side of his face? Yes, point? he does. Yes, he does. Um, so in the alternative dimension, Dennis Hopper is looking for a piece of a meteorite or something, which the brothers took from someone called Daisy in the real world. So it, Dennis Hopper needs it so he can rule the universe. So he kidnaps Daisy to get it, but then he realises the brothers have it. So he has his Goomba thugs hunt down the brothers in order to find the piece. Uh, there are also these two henchmen, uh, one of whom is played by Fisher Stevens with a dreadlocked mullet. Let's <laughs> just drink that in for a moment. Dreadlocked mullet. There's also a cameo from Lance Henriksen in this film. Let's not forget that. Um, uh, yeah, it's not it's not the finest piece of filmmaking I've ever seen, I won't lie, but there's some there's some shoddy editing. Like there's a bit where the the brothers get knocked out and the girl gets abducted, right? And it literally just cuts and they're awake and they're in the middle of running down this tunnel shouting her name. It's like, well, what happened in between? Where it's weird. Like it's like there's missing footage. There are loads of ideas in the film, but none of them are very well implemented. And there's these elaborate but really poorly realized action sequences where it's just stuff crashing and banging and ra randomly on this pretty impressive film set. It's it's a this set of like this other dimension where these dinosaur these evolved dinosaurs live. They it's this it's weirdly like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles sort of yeah. thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess it was quite a thing at the time. Um, in the kind of early to mid nineties, we saw it in Johnny Mnemonic as well. Where it's 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 weirdly dark and gritty, almost cyberpunk production design, and the dinosaurs look kind of real. And then you'll have like the mushrooms, which is obviously a reference to the game, but they'll just be regular mushrooms. It's odd, and. And other than superficial references, like basically character names, there's no real connection to the games. I mean, according to Wikipedia, Shigeru Miyamoto, creator of Mario Brothers, obviously, he said he felt the film tried too hard to replicate the games instead of just being a good film. But I don't think that's true. I think they went for something just utterly strange and dark and forgot about making it coherent on any level. Um on the plus side, it does seem that everyone is completely on board with the silly OTT tone and the ridiculousness of what they're doing. So it does have a kind of internal consistency, even if it doesn't make any sense at any point. In the alternative dimension, humans have evolved from dinosaurs. So <laughs> Dennis Hopper is a machine where he's able to like de-evolve people back into dino form. 
and um, and some of the special effects are pretty decent like the yoshi model which is just a dinosaur it's not even attempting to be a cartoony in any way but it's it's like jurassic park quality and apparently some of the um uh like technicians from who work on jurassic park came over and, and looked at you know some of the work they've been doing on super mario Brothers, and they said that you know they they actually were quite jealous of some of the designs so it's, it's oh, wow. really high quality stuff um anyway there's there is quite an amusing scene where the really stupid henchmen, uh, one of whom is, of course, Fisher Stevens, they are evolved and become massively intelligent and erudite. And I thought that's quite a nice red dwarf type moment because um, they've gone from being totally thick just to being amazingly intelligent. Um, and there's quite an amusing scene where because Luigi really fancies Daisy, basically, and, they, and he really wants to impress her. Um, but her dad has been de-evolved. Um, to the point where he's just literally a blob of primordial goo but but when luigi meets him he's like really trying to impress him saying i really admire you sir and he's just like talking to this fungus so <laughs> that bit's fine but the, the amusing bits are just too rare it's too weird and just scattered in terms of its storytelling that it's just so incoherent it's too grim too surreal too unfunny and shoddily made to really entertain kids of any generation, to be honest. And I feel that it's a lesson in what you get if you throw money at a project based purely on the brand alone, because it doesn't seem like the filmmakers had any um, particular love or admiration or um, any intention of trying to... I mean, I know they're not going to turn it into like a weird live action cartoon trying to emulate the games exactly but at the same time trying to you know capture some of the spirit some of the wholesomeness um some of the joy would have been yeah it's kind of but yeah i don't know it was, it was a weird one um it is the kind of film i guess that just must make producers just shudder and push them towards playing the safeguard really um yeah it, it's a weird one because like with mario especially it's, it's very much a game that is um that is kind of bright colorful is, is any of the music used would nintendo involved at all or um well they obviously gave it the blessing i didn't don't remember their logo being involved at any point and no i don't remember the music there's there's one bit there's a kind of repeated like motif towards the end where it's they kind of confuse the goomba thugs using a, a piece of music which would have been just perfect for you know a classic bit of the super mario theme or something to be the kind of trigger for for this confusion but no they just use some waltz some classical waltz and it's no, like well, that must have been a licensing issue because must have been i don't know there must have been something really complicated about the licensing for this film because it's I, it, it has no bearing on it. It doesn't it doesn't need to be a Super Mario Brothers film. It doesn't make any sense. Bob Hoskins is very game in it. I love him. I think he really gives it a go. But you know, I've so been John in a bad film. A few of them, and he's never been bad himself. You think about his you know the kind of movies he's been in. 
you think about something like this and you compare it to something like 24 7 where he plays like a uh boxing trainer it's black and white realist film where he plays a boxing trainer in like east london or whatever and it's like a ridiculous amount of range and here he's playing this brooklyn plumber it's uh yeah and, and like john leguizamo's game as well but apparently like john leguizamo is saying that they had such weird ideas for this film and they were shooting scenes with like strippers and stuff like that which are never going to make it into the film but it tells you the kind of just completely misguided ideas they had in their head yeah when they made this so it's a curiosity I, of sorts but it's not a good film i still haven't i think i may have seen it when i was a kid but i think again i would have seen it as a kid think probably when i was very young maybe preteen, thinking oh, i like mario and then just not understanding it and maybe even being a bit frightened by it and then you know the dinosaurs and stuff and then thinking why would i have watched that again so i may watch it at some point but uh, the, yeah, the last one for me is just going to be one. I, I'm I'm about 15, 20 minutes from the end, but I feel like I've seen enough to 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 sort of judge it because otherwise this will be one I just forget for next time. And this is a film called, um, if I'm gonna be so bold, Rust Creek, which is on Netflix now, and it is a film about a girl called Sawyer Scott who is uh, in a college. Uh, and she needs to do a 10-hour drive for for a job interview in Washington D.C. So she's driving through these quite beautiful um, autumnal forests and roads, and she gets completely lost. And when she stops, she uh, she stops. She's looking at the map on the bonnet of her car, and she gets accosted by two uh, not really hillbillies because they're way up north, but they're sort of uh, lumberjack rednecks, and they try to get her to come back to theirs for a, a bit of a party. And when she says no, they clearly have other intentions. And she manages to fight them off and stab one of them, getting stabbed herself in the process, and runs off into the woods. And then it's effectively a you know a ninety-minute sort of survival film. And it starts off really well because she's the start. She's really good because she comes across as she's quite slight, uh, like a, a pretty sort of slight person. And you just think that um, she's just going to be panicking, but she's quite intelligent and. The way she fights back against these two, like one of them is, is a big bloke and the other one is um, uh, one of them sort of a Jay Courtney size and the other one is uh, like a Chris Farley sort of size with a big beard in it. So she manages to sort of fight them off and run off. And you think, oh, she's obviously got some wherewithal about her and physical capability. But what happens is that initial interest that's raised by that and the way that she talks back to these guys and isn't just a shrinking violet is quickly offset by how um the film seems to just fall back on chance uh it's one of those films where there's only a handful of characters in it so you know that one of them is going to be a bit dicky because otherwise it would be too straight if that makes sense you know there's Mm going to be some sort of other layer to it because otherwise it would just be too basic and when it cuts away to these other characters you think well why would they be in this film otherwise um the, the i thought much like what was that film i watched recently where i talked about it on the podcast where i thought it was going to go in one direction and then it, it just didn't and you're like oh okay i can't remember what it was but it would have clearly just been better if it was her with this like dealing with this leg wound and nature mm. just uh, just going on with it but actually it's it's just not that it's there's what what the bit that sort of broke me a little bit is you're you've given this setup where she's like i said quite an intelligent young capable woman mm. 
And then she, you see, you have no sense of geography. So she's wandering like through these rivers, through these creeks, sleeping in these ravines and walking through these sort of dead woods. And then, and then you just see her come back to a point where the the brothers return and like push her car off the road just above her, and then come down and say, "Right, we better look for her." And you think, well, what you you can't have just walked in a massive circle. Are you hanging around where they accosted you in your car? And then she finds her phone in the car, and instead of just sort of limping off and just, she just stays by the car where they're clearly going to return to get into their car, which is just up the hill, and she's dicking around with her phone, and you're like. What? I've got the the sort of lack of a sense of geography of the place for the viewer really affects the film because you just you know she, she's somewhere on her phone you think I don't know where you are you could be the camera could spin around and you're next to the road for all I know I have no idea um so it, it falls apart under under the um the lack of um specificity of where things are being filmed and it's very clear where the film is going to go when it introduces certain characters because of how few characters are in the film. Uh, so it just turns into a bit of a disappointment after the first mm. 20 minutes. Oh, that's a pity. It's pretty, though. It's, you know, it's, it's pretty scenery, but, um, yeah, it's a shame. It's called Rust Creek. Rust Creek, and that is on Netflix. Yeah. It's, it sounds like a bit of a it, generic title. It sounds like the kind of title I'd skip past. So it, yeah, it also does the cardinal sin of having characters with ulterior motives meeting up with each other and not talking about their ulterior motives until it's revealed, which yes. always pisses me off. Characters serving the story Script rather and than not the character. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh dear. So you're going to finish watching it? Or are you just going to fill in the blanks on Wikipedia? <laughs> I could just read Wikipedia and be like, oh, seven out of ten. No, I think I will finish watching it because I, okay. I, I do want to see how it ends. But um, I, I, I sort of, it, it, yeah, it, it, I lost, I was fading after about 30 minutes. And I just thought, I just wish this was just based on your survival. There is a bit that I quite enjoyed where she looks look at the knife wound in her leg and it's infected and just like full of pus and she just starts dry heaving just after looking at it and realizing how bad it is and that tickled me a bit um so is it worth watching um it, 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 uh, i i have a tolerance i have a tolerance for generic thrillers but i yeah. i th- i th- i have a tolerance for generic thrillers but i think this could have been so much more um so i think that in in taking the wrong direction in the script, it becomes not so much generic, but a bit boring. And I think that's a problem. So I, I wouldn't mm. recommend it. So, yeah, I know what you mean. Like my tolerance, if, if the film is as generic and ordinary as it, as it could possibly be, then fair enough. But when a film could be so much more, that's disappointing. Like I can take generic all the way through, if there's not an obviously better version of the film, which hasn't been made. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, we'll finish on Netflix then. And a uh, slightly more depressing note, I watched World Trade Center. Okay. Um, which I've never seen before. Um, but I do have a, a morbid fascination with the September 11th attacks. Um, 
because I, I, I think I still can't quite believe it. <laughs> it's been a while. It has been a while, but yeah. Um, so obviously this is based around the September 11th, 2001 attacks on the World Trade Center. And um, as it mentions, like over 400 emergency services staff died that day in New York. And a fair chunk of them were this the Port Authority Police, because obviously there is South Manhattan and that. And this is the story of a group of them led by a man called John McLaughlin, McLaughlin, um, who is uh, portrayed by Nicolas Cage. And uh, yeah, so he leads this group of cops into the North Tower and they were inside when it came down. They were in the lobby as it fell on top of them. So uh, amazingly, a handful of them survived the initial collapse and were trapped under the rubble. And the film focuses on the those men who are trapped and okay. it cuts between them and their distraught families outside. Um, and it also focuses on the rescue efforts. So this is, it opens with a very... It's a very effective opening sequence. This is directed by Oliver Stone, by the way. It's a very effective opening sequence um, because you just start off with him, uh, John, Nicholas Cage's uh, character, obviously a real guy. Uh, he just gets up on a regular day. It's actually, he gets up at like 4 a.m. or something. And it's just a regular kind of day in New York. And the cops' concerns are mostly, well, they seem quite frivolous now. It's just missing persons and stuff. And then, of course, there's sudden chaos and, and there's some really interesting parts to this film because it shows how ill-informed the cops were. Even when they go inside the North Tower, they had no idea that the other tower had been hit. Like, they're just getting, it's just rumours. They're saying, oh, the other tower's on fire. Oh, and then other people are saying, no, 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 it's just the smoke. And it's like, it's it's quite terrifying, really, how clueless they are even at that point. And it has a sort of grimly Hitchcockian type of uh, quality to it. It's the art of the audience knowing what's going to happen before any of the characters do. Um, and considering it's an Oliver Stone film, it's, it's distinctly apolitical. It's, it doesn't go into that stuff at all. It's, it's all about bravery and stoicism, resilience, human spirit, etc. And of course, all of the sentimentality that comes with that. But I do kind of think when you consider the immensity and like profundity of the occasion, it, it would be hard not to lean into that primal emotional sentiment, I suppose. I wonder if they threw a bunch of money at someone like Paul Greengrass, he could make something more visceral, less cloying, perhaps. But I, maybe it's not really required at this point. Plus, of course, Paul Greengrass did his... 9-11 film with United 93. Um, so Maria Bello and Mar Maggie Gyllenhaal are the worried wives. Uh, and usually those roles uh, are quite thankless. But in this, they actually have a lot more acting to do than their husbands because their husbands are basically motionless for three quarters of the film. Um, most interestingly is Michael Shannon, who plays someone called Sergeant Dave Carnes. He is an ex-Marine who uh, 
who saw this what's happening on TV, he goes down to ground zero and basically lies his way onto the site just so he can help out. And he's a most interesting, unusual character because he's basically a socially inept asshole, really. But at the same time, he's also a gift from God because uh, he turns out to be absolutely crucial in the end. But that was I thought he was a pretty interesting character. Um, oh, and Viola Davis turns up in a very brief scene. This was in the days when Viola Davis was just stealing films in five minute cameos. And she does the same here. And there is um, there's some added poignancy, I'd say, in the final message, because uh, it, it talks about how 9-11, consider this was made like five years afterwards. It says about how 9-11 brought Americans together in this like shared humanity, yes. which is probably true. However, you've got to at the time, and yet you look at the US now and how politically divided it is, and yeah. it doesn't feel like a message for the ages, sadly. And um, anyway, so I, I'd say that, yes, uh, World Trade Center, it handles material in exactly the way you'd expect from a film just five years on. Uh, it's very careful and respectful and sentimental, but it does have some interesting new perspectives that that like the raw footage couldn't capture and the special effects and sound design are really intense, really well done. And as other performances and I mean, this, you think about how unusual it is to have Nick Cage basically acting the entire film, just entirely through his face, which you wouldn't have thought would be a thing, but yeah, he does really, does really well. So it's a, uh, it's not exactly laugh a minute, obviously, but it's a it's a high quality drama. If you want to know what it would be like if Paul Greengrass directed it, just watch it on fast forward. <laughs> yeah. Just put it through a random editing generator. <laughs> just cut from scene to scene. So yeah. it's film of the week time. Um, I, I think for me. I, I've, I've got a bit of a double whammy, really, because I would say if you're watching something by yourself, watch Standoff because it, it is it is good fun. Mm. You know, like have a beer or a glass of wine, and it is it's a film that could get lost in sentimentality when it cuts into Thomas Jane's um, Thomas Jane's backstory, but it never does. It just shows you all you need to know. And it, the music is fantastic. There's some beautiful cinematography in it, and it's it's just a really sort of boom boom 19 minute. Uh, funky action film and Lawrence mm -hmm. Fishman is funny in it and yep. uh, Thomas Jane says fine so yeah stand off if you're alone if you're with friends and you've got a few beers in and a pizza for chaos. god's sake watch chaos please watch chaos <laughs> um well for me yeah World Trade Center is good I think Soylent Green is very good so I'm gonna go with Soylent Green oh, nice. directed in 1973 I'm I suppose you want your Arkansas for next time. Yes, please. Yes, so, please. So it's it's again two two nil to to you uh, against mm -hmm. the viewers, and you all have to get from Margot Robbie to Ryan Philippe. Um and yeah, again, the uh, email us at the men who talk at outlook .com and Margot Robbie to Ryan Philippe. Okay. I, I would okay. say if we I know we, we don't tend to do these things, but if if we did a like the like the top ten and worst ten kind of thing at the end of the year, mm. 
the intergalactic adventures of max cloud would would be on mm. one of those lists it'd feature it, it was feature. Yeah. there's something about watching a film and just feeling a bit embarrassed this like <sighs> yeah it must be well as a scott adkins fan it must be painful for you especially uh but it's just very, you know, i don't know why, i don't know why he says no, no, I think that, like I said, watch Avengement and, uh, but yeah, this is just, mm. I don't know what it was. It was, I think it was embarrassing for everyone involved, quite frankly. I mean, he, he gives it a go. He, he knows what he has to do in the film, but it's just the quality of the writing and direction and everything, really. It, it's got... like, it was, it's one of those films where it felt like the entire cast had been duped into it. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Um, do you think we're actually going to get around to maybe having um, a Richard Donner session next time? I think, yeah, we should go for the Richard Donner. I mean, it's not like we have to re-watch his entire filmography. I think we've seen Lethal Weapon 3 enough times. So, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd be happy to do that. But I do have to get on top of the whole Maverick. watching Maverick thing. Yeah, you, you stupid I don't want man. it to be the one that got away. Um, yeah, let me know where it is as well because I'll rewatch that. Okay. As well. But yeah, obviously uh, we send out laser beams of love across the universe, and um, I'll speak to you soon. Take care, and be well. <laughs>